Jesus, your grace is sufficient for us in our weakness, for your power. Jesus, your light, it's made perfect in our weakness. We need you. We need you, God. I ask you to give us hunger tonight. Give us hunger as we study your holy scriptures tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. We humbly submit to your word. We ask you, Jesus, as you illuminated the understanding of the two on the road to Emmaus, will you do the same for us tonight? We need you. We need your spirit to come. We resolve to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. God, we don't lean on wise and persuasive words. We need your spirit to move with demonstrations of power. Lord, we need your grace in our midst. Renew our minds. Renew our hearts. Renew our spirits tonight, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. How's everyone doing? Good? Okay? Is that, that means okay? Not too bad? <laughs> good, it's good to have everyone here tonight. All right, let's get started. Tonight we're going to talk about prayer. There's the notes. All right, we're ready to go. We're going to review just a little bit. We're not going to spend as much time in review this week. As we've talked about the last few weeks, the Lord has highlighted several dimensions of Daniel's life and ministry that he wants us to incorporate into what we're doing on Friday nights here at the Daniel Institute of Prayer and Missions. Daniel prayed fervently. Daniel prophesied. Daniel proclaimed. He prepared It says three times a day, Daniel got down on his knees and he prayed. Now, of course, he prayed more than three times a day. These were probably three, three times that he set apart specifically for a focused time of prayer. But he was a man of prayer. That's the point. It was the foundation of his life. And as he gave himself to prayer and communion with God, the Lord gave him insight into the nature of his hope. Daniel also proclaimed He proclaimed the biblical gospel. He proclaimed the Messiah's coming kingdom. He proclaimed the resurrection of the saints at the end of the age. He proclaimed the day when God would vindicate His people after the great tribulation. Times, times, and half a time. After which Jesus would come back and redeem His saints from death and give us brand new bodies and establish us in His kingdom as rulers, co-rulers with Him, over the nations of the earth, Daniel 2.44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that when Jesus returns, he is going to establish a kingdom on this earth, and he's going to remove every corrupt and defiling influence from the face of the planet. It says in Daniel 2 that it's going to be like God takes a mountain, he cuts out a mountain, he cuts out of a the mountain, a rock, and it fills the earth, and it crushes every wicked kingdom. Daniel seven eighteen. after the little horn has 
been executing a reign of terror on the earth for three and a half years, at the end of that time, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Daniel 12, 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel had a vision and understanding of his hope in a kingdom of righteousness. And therefore, he also prepared in righteousness. And he prophesied as well. He prophesied with skill. He had sensitivity to the voice of the Lord. I'll let you read those, those scriptures on your own there. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. But we just want to begin incorporating these things in a proactive way. Like Daniel, we want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit with, with clarity. We want to gain understanding into the nature of the challenges that face us in the days ahead. So in August, we're going to begin this four-part rotation. We've talked about this several weeks, so this shouldn't be new to most of you. The first Friday of every month, we're going to have a solemn prayer assembly. We're going to talk about that tonight, why it's important. The second Friday of every month, we're going to have these, continue these Emmaus Road gatherings where we're plowing through the Scriptures line by line, asking the Holy Spirit to cause our hearts to burn and to have a deeper and deeper understanding of our hope, a deeper understanding of the message that Jesus is calling us to proclaim at the end of the age in context of great difficulty. The third Friday of every month, we're going to have these prophetic forums where we come together to discuss what the Spirit's been saying to us through dreams and visions, impressions, the various ways that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. We talked about that last week. On the third Friday night, we're, uh, excuse me, on the fourth Friday night, we're going to have preparation seminars. We're going to be devoting these to practical skills. How do you actually do small groups? What's a good small group? What's a bad small group? And why is it important in the first place? How do you organize yourself in, that kind, in, a, in a context of intense persecution so that if people in one house group are killed then the church doesn't die. It can grow and expand even more. It has time to rebound. These are very practical questions that we need to be asking ourselves. How do you actually do some basic first aid? What if you're present when one of those Matthew 24 earthquakes happens nearby? Now, hopefully, we'll be raising the dead in the midst of that too, but it would be good to have some first aid skills, skills in there too, okay? These, can, these preparation seminars will take different shapes, different content from week, uh, each t- week to week each time we do them. Last week, we focused our attention on prophecy. We examined the nature of the prophetic in the Old Testament, and then we looked at the shift in the prophetic from the Old to the New Testament, trying to figure out if we, you know, if we get 85% of a prophetic word right, but we're kind of off on 15%, how come we're not getting stoned? Okay, the Old Testament standard was pretty high, so we we really wanted to get clarity on what happened from Old to New Testament and how it affected the nature of the prophetic, how it affects us today. It's clear from the New Testament that following the day of Pentecost, prophetic gifts are no longer confined strictly to a special class of prophets. Joel, in in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes from Joel 2, and he says, that the Spirit was going to be poured out. And when the Spirit was poured out, all of the people of God, all His sons and daughters would prophesy. Old men would dream dreams. Young men would have visions. So the question is, when the Spirit is poured out on a more general basis, what does it actually look like practically? 
What does it look like practically when the, when the prophetic is no longer identified more specifically with a special class of prophets in the nation of Israel, but, those, but gifts which are of a prophetic nature are made accessible to the saints on a broader basis? What does it actually look like? We saw that uh, while some in the body of Christ are gifted in the prophetic more than others, all believers have the capacity to hear Jesus' voice, the Spirit, on some level. John 10, His sheep, we hear His voice. We don't listen to the voice of strangers. We're connected with our Good Shepherd, and He goes before us, and He leads us, he leads us out. And all of us are admonished to eagerly desire spiritual gifts of a prophetic nature for the purpose of encouraging and edifying other members of the body of Christ. That in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, eagerly desire the Spirit's enabling so that you can do things not in your own strength and you can edify the body. Some of us have more, are gifted in the prophetic more than others, but all of us have the invitation to seek God for an increased measure of His Spirit and the spiritual gifts. Prophetic words, as we saw last week, are meant by God to help us fight the good fight. This is what Paul told Timothy, and to cling more tightly to faith and a good conscience before God. We didn't talk about this as much last week. Uh, I wish I'd had this point in there, but just want to highlight it here, that the prophetic, prophetic words are signs of the day of the Lord and the coming judgment when God will judge the secrets and motives of our hearts. 1 Corinthians 14, 24-25, I love this passage. Paul's describing one aspect of why the prophetic is so powerful, especially with unbelievers. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand, or the NIV alternative says, if some inquirer, someone who's coming in who's never seen what the church is about much, he comes in while everyone's prophesying, he's getting his mail read. He's watching other people get their mail read, and what, what does that do to him? He's convinced by all that he's a sinner, and he'll be judged by all. The fear of God hits him. Verse 25, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So the question is, as this guy is getting his mail read, what does it actually mean? It means that on the day of the Lord, God is going to come back and judge men's secrets and, and expose all of our motives for all that great cloud of witnesses to see, for all of the angelic hosts to see, for our brothers and sisters to see. And this information when we have tokens of it in the prophetic in our midst now, it's to drive us on to seek God for purity of heart, for Him to remove mixture in our motives. It's to encourage us that, hey, He really does take note of my life, and if I live in righteousness for the age to come, He really is going to reward me and, and put me in His kingdom and give me an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So the prophetic has great potential to strengthen the saints in our hope. It's a sign of the day of the Lord. Any questions from last week before we move on to prayer tonight? Just so you know that we had a glitch in the, in the system, so we didn't get the recording, so I, I re-recorded it. So if there's new information in there um, that you didn't get last week, I I can't remember which stories I told and all that, so if there's new information, you might want to go check it out. So I, I was teaching the air yesterday afternoon. It was great, you know. I could pause it if I messed up and rewind. and da, da, da. So anyway, 
So tonight we're going to look at the, we're going to talk at the, about the subject of prayer. What's prayer? Why is prayer important? Why must we be rooted and grounded in a lifestyle of prayer, especially at the end of the age? What are some of the different ways God wants prayer to be expressed in His body? And what place does prayer have in the end of the age drama described in the Bible? And I want to pray that the Lord will just give us grace to really let this topic sink into our hearts tonight. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we say that prayer and talks about prayer never get old because it's talking, we're talking about fellowshipping with you. And, Lord, you never get old. You never, ever get old. Jesus, you are beautiful. We love hearing your voice in the place of prayer. We love crying out to you. We love pouring our hearts out to you, for you are our refuge. So, Lord, I ask you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. I ask you, Father, open up our eyes to this topic tonight. And give us heart understanding in Jesus' name. All right. Take note of any questions that you might have. I, sorry, I, I didn't take much time to field questions last week. So let's, uh, we'll take some time to do that if you have any. Uh, take note of them while we're going through this. Let's start off uh, with the church's identity and function as a house of prayer. Now, the reason I'm going into this is a lot of times when people hear the house, the word house of prayer, they tend to automatically think of, you know, a building or a ministry. They think of what's going on in Kansas City. How many of you ever listen to the web stream from IHOP? So most of you, okay, most of you are connected with that resource. It's a, it's a wonderful place. I was, I was there on staff for two and a half years, and the Lord did some really deep work in my heart in that place of prayer. But I want to focus less at this point on the actual uh, building or a ministry that is identified as a house of prayer. And I want to fo- focus on just our identity as the church as a house of prayer. In the book of Isaiah, God calls the Jerusalem temple a house of prayer. I love this passage, Isaiah 56, uh, 4 through 7. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. Verse 7, These I will bring to my holy mountain. And watch what he does when he brings these faithful ones to his holy mountain. He's going to give them joy in my house of prayer. So here we see that the temple and the house of prayer is one and the same. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God has extended this promise to the eunuchs who hold fast to him, to the foreigners and of course to the believing Jews as well, that if they honor Him, that one of the rewards He's going to give them, He's going to bring them to the temple. And it's going to be a house of prayer where people can express their love and thanksgiving to God. And God's going to give them joy there, great joy. But the house of prayer 
and the temple are one and the same thing. In the New Testament, Paul says that in Christ, the saints constitute God's temple in which He lives by His Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So you, you, he's talking to Gentiles here, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, along with believing Jews. But built on the foundation of the, the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, that in this age, Jesus, the master potter, by the power of the Spirit, is shaping the saints, both Jew and Gentile, into vessels that can bear an eternal weight of glory. We, Solomon tried to build a, ham, a, a temple with his hands, and Isaiah 66 says, where's the temple you'll build for me? And the point is that God is saying, I'm going to take my people and I'm going to fashion out of them a temple. And what's it going to be like when we stand before him in a temple, a pillar in the house of our God, and he just pours his glory into us? That's a temple. That's a temple. The Shekinah glory that came on Solomon's temple is meant to be poured out into us and through us and around us. And in this age, Jesus is strengthening us and shaping us into that. From Isaiah, we learn that the temple and the house of prayer are one reality. From the New Testament, we learn that the saints form the real temple that God's going for. A temple not built by human hands, but by God Himself. If the temple is the house of prayer, and if the temple is the people of God, then the house of prayer is the people of God. The identity, who we are as the assembly, As the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah is a house of prayer. Our corporate identity as the temple of God is inextricably tied to our corporate identity as priests set apart to minister before God in a world otherwise hostile to Him. There are multitudes throughout the earth, millions of people, billions of people that are not giving God the glory and the praise and the honor that He deserves. Multitudes who are not worshiping the Lamb as as the Father requires the earth to worship Him. When we accept the gospel, by default we become a house of prayer. By default we become a contrast to what I just described, to the idolatry. We become a holy temple made up of living, breathing stones whose lips continually offer sacrifices of praise that honor Jesus' name. We become a temple that says, I don't care how many millions are not giving Jesus praise. Praise is going to flow from my lips. Praise is going to flow from our lips. 1 Peter 2, 4-5. As you come to Him, the living stone, the cornerstone, the one from whom the entire building is built into a temple. This stone was rejected by men. Though men rejected him, he was chosen by God and precious to him. And you also, 
the implication is though you are rejected by men, you also are living stones chosen by God. You take your stand and you're set apart and when Jesus comes back, the wind, the Spirit's going to blow where it wishes. He's going to choose selectively those who come up from the grave in power and glory. We're being built into a, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood set apart offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're living stones. We're a temple that moves. We're a temple that breathes. We're a temple that calls in the name of the Lord for strength and for grace in our time of need. Hebrews 3, 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name, the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who redeemed us as the reward of his sufferings. Letter D. So this truth about who we are in our identity as a house of prayer, it explains why in the New Testament we're constantly called by the apostles on a functional level as the body of Christ to pray without ceasing. Who we are is intimately bound to what we do. You can't separate the two. You can't call a car a car without a car actually running and doing things that a car does. We are a living temple of prayer that will never cease to exist because of our inclusion in the resurrection of the righteous. One day evangelism will cease. Prayer and communion and fellowship and sacrifices of praise will never cease. God's will for us is a life of unceasing prayer. As the body of Christ, we are summoned by God to devote ourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For what? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is not an option. This is God's will for us. The Father, looking upon His Son on the cross, says, My Son deserves worship and praise. This is my will that you do this. Colossians 4, 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So we are a house of prayer. We're living and breathing stones. Therefore, practically, we've got to pray. Okay? If we're actually going to fulfill our actual identity as the church, we have to pray and be committed to it. Now, though a devotion to prayer requires effort... Intention, you know, sometimes prayer is just not, e- it's just not easy sometimes. Sometimes it's work. It's hard work. Sometimes it's hard work, and though it requires effort, intentionality, focus, sometimes it requires growth in the knowledge of God. It requires paradigm shifts. You know, if you come from a background, you've got a lot of father wounds, you have to let the Holy Spirit take you through those so that you want to approach God in prayer. Okay? There's all kinds of things that go into growing in a life of prayer, but by the grace of God, a life of prayer, it's not a burden when we actually begin to engage in it and let the Holy Spirit transform our hearts and and bring us, uh, make us alive in that place. As we regularly and wholeheartedly give ourselves to intimacy with Him through prayer, He will meet us and fill our hearts with great joy and spiritual pleasures through the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a time, I've set it aside for prayer, I just didn't want to do it. I was feeling dry and barren, and God, this is, uh, let's just go do something else. 
but I just said, okay, I'm just going to start doing it. And I, you open your mouth, and suddenly you find that your spirit starts to come alive. And Jesus brings the word alive. And, he, and, and suddenly you find that you've been in prayer for a couple hours. And maybe you even started weeping sometimes. You know, and the Lord, he, he met you there. It's the same way with marriage, you know, when you're in marriage, in a, in, 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 in a marriage covenant with somebody, you know, a lot of times things are just regular, you know, you're building intimacy through just conversation, and then there are those moments where it's more dramatic and you're feeling a deep emotional connection, but they always go together. Good communication along with all of the other blessings of marriage. In light of the above, we see that a house of prayer is first and foremost something we are, and only secondarily someplace we go. There is no hard distinction in God's mind between church and house of prayer on an identity level. A group of saints that prays often is simply the temple functioning the way God designed it to function. So before we move on, any questions or comments to add? I'd love to hear any thoughts that the Spirit's putting in your hearts. And I'll just repeat them if you have any so that we get them recorded. Questions, thoughts? I see some wheels turning. I think that you touched on something like a sacrifice for prayer. Uh, I think what you're trying to hit on that, that sometimes our flesh for ourselves will not necessarily it's not our desire. Mm-hmm. You're laying your life down. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good that sometimes uh, what I'm hearing you say is that sometimes when it's not easy to pray, but you begin to do it, it's a sacrifice, and then and it's a sacrifice of praise. But, but then when you're in the midst of the sacrifice, the Lord meets you there, and suddenly it doesn't even feel like a sacrifice anymore. That's good. Other thoughts? Okay, sure. The, so the question is, just to, he's just ask, Ross is just asking me to maybe explain the connection between the temple and the house of prayer. The main point is that the, 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 the central place of prayer in, in the nation of Israel was the actual temple in Jerusalem, right? And that temple is going to be restored in the age to come when Jesus establishes his throne in Jerusalem. So there is actually going to be a building called the temple, where people actually go to actually pray. So, in that passage, in Isaiah 56, he says the temple is equivalent to the house of prayer. Okay? That when they come to the temple, people pray. And so, I'm making the extension into the New Testament where, you know, in the... Let me go back to the Old Testament for a minute, where Solomon, praising and worshiping God, says, Lord, who's going to... Who can build a temple for you, you know, with, with our own hands? And in Isaiah 66, God says, where's the house you're going to build for me? 
I, and so I'm going to build a house. Okay, and so remember uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when, G, when God's making the, the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, he says, David says, oh, I want to build you a house. And God says, actually, David, I'm going to build you a house. And so what does he do? He brings the Messiah from David's line, raises his, this, this Jewish Messiah from the line of David from the dead, pours out the Spirit into his people, and now we're in Christ, and therefore we're going to receive a resurrected body, and that is the temple that God promised David, that I'm going to make out of you a temple, out of you a house. Okay, and so, and so that's the point is that when uh, in the New Testament we are the temple, and we learn that the temple is a house of prayer from Isaiah 56. And so I'm, I'm saying that now if we are the temple as His people, and if we know that the temple in God's mind is a house of prayer, it's a place of prayer, then that means we are a house of prayer. Like the church, we are the church, we are a house of prayer in our identity. And so we, in the New Jerusalem, we're going to go to the actual temple, so we'll be a house of prayer meeting in a place of prayer, a house of prayer, uh, and therefore we're called to constantly pray, okay? Because I'm just trying to, I'm trying to really drill into our hearts that we, in our identity, we're a house of prayer. Bryce. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that in a couple minutes, so I'll save that, my answer for then. So, any other questions real quick before we move on? Okay. Yeah, we're going to get to that issue when we get to expressions of prayer and different and functions of prayer. So, why is a lifestyle of prayer so important? And I'll just ask you guys, why do you think God places so much emphasis on prayer in the Bible? Some of your thoughts. Bryce? We realize that it's him that does it. That's good. So when we pray, it's God that gets the glory. Versus, tri- versus striving in the flesh, when we pray, God actually gets the glory. That's good. Terry or Josh? Josh. Yeah, felt, that's right. So prayer is a, the context for fellowshipping with God. Terry and then Ross. I, I think it's the way we get things lost. So that essentially it's the connection of eternal, I'm going to use the word eternal life, it's that eternal fellowship, it's the whole spiritual, it's the whole canopy of... of Taking his life into us. Pray the Lord. 
That's good. To get his mind and his heart. That's really good. I mean, you guys pointed three points, basically, that we're going to talk about tonight, one at a time, so that's really good. Ross, you had something? the only way we get well-being. That's good. That's really good. So actually, you guys hit the three main points we're going to look at uh, here tonight um, on this top, on the why is a lifestyle of prayer so important. So obviously, there's many reasons why prayer is important to God and why it's important for us to pray. We don't have time to look at them all. Let's look at three, though. Number one, prayer is the primary means of accessing grace for obedience to Christ. This is Terry's, where this is the way we get his mind and his heart, and we take his life into us. In the same way that a baby receives nourishment from, from his or her mother, the baby has, has a part, and, and the mother has a part. Number two, prayer is the source of power for fruitfulness in our ministry assignments so that God actually gets the glory. That's Bryce was touching on that. And number three, prayer is the context for fulfilling our call to fellowship with the triune God of love and intimate friendship. And that's where Josh and Ross were, uh, what they were touching on. On a broad level, let's talk about the first one here. Prayer is the primary means of accessing grace for obedience. On a broad level, grace is a shorthand phrase for God's enabling power to do what we cannot do on our own. This, in Scripture, this, the grace is used in different context to describe God's power applied to multiple situations. It applies to ministry. Acts 4.33 is an example of just talking about how the grace of God was with them, and so they were enabled to to do things in His power that they couldn't have done otherwise. It applies to finances. 2 Corinthians 9.8, Paul tells them, don't be afraid to be cheerful givers because God is able to take His grace and make it abound to you so that if you give sacrificially, He's able to bring it back to you. He'll take what seems like an impossible situation financially, put His grace in the equation, and suddenly you've got your needs met. So grace is applied in a financial context in 2 Corinthians 9. And it's also applied to personal transformation. We're going to look at that passage here in Titus. Whenever God enables us in some way that's beyond and above our normal range of power, capacity, and ability, we're experiencing His grace. The Spirit's grace is what enables us to obey Jesus' commands. How many of you know we can't obey Jesus without the Spirit, without His grace? How many of you have ever tried that? It's horrible. It is so, it is so frustrating. I mean, I could tell you lots of stories, but you already know... Uh, how weak a man I am, so I won't go into all those stories. That is, that's a good definition. Trying to do something to please God without His grace, which you can't actually do. That's good. The Spirit's grace is what enables us to obey Jesus' commands. We can't obey God in the way He desires apart from the enablement or grace of the Spirit. The grace of the Spirit instructs us in righteousness. How many of you know that the grace of God actually teaches us? Uh, I'll give you a quick little story on that one when I get down there. Don't let me forget. It's a really cool story. Sanctify, it's, the grace of God sanctifies us as Jesus' bride and transforms us over time into creatures worthy of inheriting the glories of the age to come. So Acts 20, 32, we see that uh, Paul tells us that the grace of God is able to give us an inheritance among those who are sanctified by the word of His grace. So 
when we're walking with God and He speaks His words of grace, He's building us up through His power to make us worthy of inheriting the age to come. He actually wants to transform us into the people that He wants to be in His kingdom forever. Okay? Free of, of all the things that corrupt our hearts uh, in this age. Titus 2, 11-14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. First Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So we've got a grace helping us in preparation now, and when Jesus is revealed, it's His grace that's going to give us new bodies. The power of the Spirit is also going to be the same grace which gives us uh, resurrected bodies when Jesus returns. Verse 12, it teaches us to say, no. So what does the, the Spirit of grace teach us? To say no to what? To ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we're waiting for Jesus' return. So the grace of God instructs us to say no to wickedness and to say yes to right. Let me give you an example. We, uh, in Kansas City, I was part of a little uh, house church, and we led one of the neighbors to the Lord, and, and he didn't... He couldn't read very well. But let me give you an example of how the grace of God teaches us to say no. He began, Jesus began to disciple him in some very interesting ways. He had struggled with some pornography in his past. And his brother, you know, when he came to the Lord, he wanted to begin getting rid of that stuff and resisting it. But his brother had not accepted the Lord yet. And so his brother still had stuff, the wrong magazines on the, the floor and that kind of stuff. This man, whose name was Bill, if when he would feel the temptation come to pick up one of those magazines, he would bend down to pick up the magazine, and literally the Holy Spirit would begin to squeeze his heart. And he'd begin to feel pressure on his heart like it was going to explode if he touched that thing. But then he'd back off, and psh, the Holy Spirit would let go. Then he'd, if he'd feel the temptation come again, he'd bend down to reach it, He began to feel the Holy Spirit. Literally, his physical heart began to squeeze it. Like, if you do this, I'm going to take you out, son. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know what that, what it actually, but the fear of God is in him. The grace of God, he didn't have the Bible, that many Bible verses memorized, but he had the grace of God, and the grace of God was instructing him, no, don't pick that up. That's wickedness. Oh, he resists? Yes, that's righteousness. Okay? Isn't that an amazing story? The grace of God really is sufficient to lead the newest of believers in righteousness and instruct us. Grace is available to us simply by virtue of the fact that we are in covenant with God through Jesus' blood. However, in a covenant, both parties to the covenant have a role to play. How many of you are married? What if, one, what if only one of you did your part? The thing wouldn't work, would it? Our part is to access grace through constant prayer. Prayer is the primary means by which the saints access grace for righteousness, transformation, and obedience to the law of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. So let's uh, read, just a, I'm just going to read verse 16 here. We have a great high priest who brings our prayers before the Father, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, knows what it means to be tempted, and knows how to resist temptation. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. So what's at the throne? What's available to us at the throne? Grace. It's a throne of grace. Grace, God. Grace, God. Grace, God. 
so that we may receive mercy when we stumble. We get up and we call out God when we stumble. We say, God, have mercy on me, forgive me, and give me grace to actually go forward and move ahead in righteousness. Give me grace in my time of need. And the time of need is the temptation that he's talking about there. When we're tempted, we need grace to follow through in righteousness and obedience to the commands of Jesus. Matthew 7, 7 through 12, Jesus, by the time he gets towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, recognizes that he's calling his disciples to a higher standard of heart transformation than was present even in the Mosaic law. But he's actually calling them to actually not lust and not worry. He actually wants them to live these things, and he recognizes that when people read that, they're going to come to the conclusion, I can't do this by myself, but he still commands us to do it. But I can't do it by myself, but he still commands us to do it. And that's the point. So towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Well, what door? What are we seeking for? We're seeking for grace to actually, for men to look at a woman and not lust after her. To actually have very little in our finances and not worry about it. And these things, you know, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he concludes that the wise man built his house on the rock, on these teachings, it's because of the storm that's coming. It actually means that if you are going to be living at the end of the age when the storm is coming, and you know that to inherit the kingdom, no sexually immoral person is going to inherit that kingdom, and you're going to be surrounded by Sodom and Gomorrah all over the earth, you had better be crying out for grace in growth and righteousness on the inside so that you stand firm through that storm. And if you're not building your life on the rock now, then when the storm comes, you're going to be swept away. You're going to be caught up in it. And that applies. The, the worry thing. Look at the birds of the air. See how they, they, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. There's a day when we're going to have to be like that. Otherwise, the alternative is take a mark. And if you take that mark, you go to a lake of fire. So we have to grow in righteousness and call for grace, go to the throne of grace, persistently asking for grace so that we get set free from worry and fear over financial provision because we're going to actually face that test when the storm comes. Our life has to really be built on the rock. And so Jesus says, If you, then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? And you learn from the cross-reference in Luke, the parallel passage, that He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Luke says, If you, know, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So the good gift here is, how much more will Jesus give the Spirit of grace to you to actually live the Sermon on the Mount in preparation for the storm that's coming so that you stand firm through it? Does that make sense? Letter E, we can't do God's part, God won't do our part. I've heard, you know, there, I've heard Mike Bickle say that and a number of others. It's a great, great way to remember just that there are some things that God's just not going to do unless we pray. The wise man builds his house on the rock of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. A life built on the Sermon on the Mount is what will withstand the coming storms. However, we cannot obey these commands of Christ apart from His grace. Jesus knew that. 
So he told us to ask for the Holy Spirit's power. So, that's the first point. We've got to cultivate a life of prayer. It's the means by which we access grace to enter into the kind of life that will actually stand firm through the storms that are coming. Another reason prayer is important is that God simply does more and moves in more power when we boldly seek Him in prayer. I love, uh, this is 2 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11. Paul says, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers. Prayers are a help to others. They are a real help to others. If you pray for somebody, you're helping them. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And in that passage, Paul says that they were in a situation that they were despairing even of life. And the, saint, the prayers of the saints rising before God. I mean, think about it. Think about that your prayers actually influence whether people in China accept the gospel or not, or hear the gospel, or the church endures through a persecution rather than succumbs and gives in to the pressures to turn away from the faith. Prayer is powerful. It influences things. Acts 4, 29-31. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal, to perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So if you ever wonder whether we have permission to ask God to do works of power and signs and wonders and miracles, here's your answer. The apostles were not embarrassed about it. After they prayed... The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. That prayer, something happened in the place of prayer, and from that place they were able to speak the Word of God boldly. And so people that often have a hard time being bold in evangelism, the first thing we really need to do is get a deeper life of prayer and begin seeking God for boldness in our witness. James 5.15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. That there, if there's a sick person and you don't pray for him, he's definitely not getting healed. But if you pray for him, then, uh, then the prayer offered in faith is going to make the sick person well. Just, uh, I won't talk a lot about this, but there are a lot, it, this is similar of what, what, what happened with us, there are a lot of ministries in the Muslim world that are discovering prayer. And they realize as they're giving themselves to prayer, God's moving in response to those prayers, and they're seeing a lot more fruit. Okay? A lot of our missions, models, and paradigms, they equate busyness with fruitfulness versus communion with fruitfulness. So that's encouraging, and that's just going to increase as the Lord grips the missions movement with, with prayer, a heart for prayer. Letter H However, prayer is not simply a means to the end of a more fruitful ministry. You know, it's good. You pray, God does more. That's really good. The alternative is you don't pray and God does less, and you get, you know, you don't see any fruit. So, but more importantly than, than prayer as a means to a more fruitful ministry is the life of prayer. It actually forms the context in which we commune with our Maker and Redeemer in friendship, fellowship, and intimacy. Prayer is the end, not just the means. 
We're always going to be praying forever and ever and ever. One day, we're going to, evangelism will cease. Healing ministries will cease. But prayer will go on forever because communion with God goes on forever. And prayer is the context for communion. In prayer, we express the longing of our hope for the bridegroom's return to make the wrong things right. We are called to fellowship with the Holy Trinity. And this is going to go on forever. So, 1 Corinthians 1.9, God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. We're in communion with the Son. 2 Corinthians 13.14, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. We're in communion with the indwelling Spirit. 1 John 1.3, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with who? It's with the Father too. And with his son, Jesus Christ. Father, we love being your children. Jesus, we love being your bride. We love being your servants. We love being your saints. We love being your inheritance. And Holy Spirit, we love being your home. We love being your house. Oh, God. Grip us. Grip us, O oh God, with a high vision for fellowshipping with the very Trinity, the one who made the heavens and the earth. Grip us, Jesus, with a vision for prayer, not just as a means to an end, but as the end in itself, the place where we encounter you and see you seated high on your throne in the highest height of the heavens. Grip us with a vision for this, Jesus. Enlarge our capacity to fellowship with you. Enlarge our capacity to hear your voice. Enlarge our capacity to bring you joy and to receive joy in the place of prayer in Jesus' name. 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 22, Maranatha. Come, O Lord. Prayer is the means by which we express our passion and desire for Jesus to come back. So, Bryce, does that answer your question? Well, we have, no, that doesn't answer your question. That's the next section. Any questions on this section, section uh, three there? Let's get into the manifold expressions of prayer. From the above, we see that a deep commitment to prayer is part of New Testament Christianity. There's no such thing as a non-praying church. I mean, there, is, I, there are non-praying churches, but they, they need to be praying. Okay, I'm not going to get into, into any kind of soapboxes or anything. Every disciple of Jesus is called to abide in Jesus through a lifestyle of constant prayer. However, from the Scriptures, we also learn that a commitment to prayer has manifold outward expressions in terms of prayer formats, group dynamics, organization, outward forms, and formats and expressions of prayer can vary according to calling, individual, a corporate calling, divine mandates, circumstances, and cultures. Harp and bowl is probably going to look a little bit different in China. Different instruments, different sounds, different languages have different... China, uh, Mandarin's a tonal language, right? So how do, you, how do you do harp and bowl with a tonal language? I mean, I, I'd butcher the whole thing. King David, the Apostle Paul, and Anna were all deeply committed to prayer. Are we all agreed on that? Let's read. Of course, King David wrote most of the Psalms, and so this is one little verse from the Psalms. So the entire Psalm is a, is a prayer book, Okay. I call you, O God, for you answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. The entire Psalms are, are David's journal of prayer. 
So I don't need to go into that anymore. Luke 2, 36-37, this is Anna. I can't wait to meet Anna. This woman's an intense prayer warrior. Got a few of those around here too. There was also prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow until she was 84. What's 84 minus 7? <laughs> That's a lot of years. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. That woman is probably the reason most of us got saved, some of the prayers that she prayed back then. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul here, 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayer. So Anna wasn't the only one praying night and day. The Apostle Paul was also praying night and day. Now, where was Anna praying most of the time? Where was Paul praying most of the time? In a prison. <laughs> now, sometimes the house of prayer, I'm not going to say the house of prayer, sometimes feels like a prison. But uh, <laughs> there have been times when, there, there, I'll just confess, there were times when I was at IHOP where I just had to go outside and, and, and get a change of atmosphere so I would sneak out and, and pray outside. Lord, forgive me. I, that's confession. Mike Bickle, if you ever hear this random message, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Um, anyway, so I have a question. Which of these three do you think was most committed to prayer? Anna, David, or Paul? That's my question for you. Probably Anna. No, just <laughs> Probably Anna, but anyway, you get the point. It's kind of a rhetorical question, but the point is that David, Paul, and Anna were, were and always will be a part of the house of prayer and their identity. They're all living stones. They're all part of the temple that God's building by the Spirit. However, prayer found expression differently in their lives according to their different callings. From a foundation of prayer, David ruled a nation. He went to the temple, and then he went and to war <laughs> as a king of a nation. From a foundation of prayer, Paul went to the nations. His prayer furnace was often a prison cell. He had a lot of time to pray. To pray. Anna sat in... I, I love their stories of the Chinese. They said they got out of prison, and their life with God started to kind of dwindle, so... God put him back in prison, they said. <laughs> Hopefully we can, we can learn in other ways besides that, but Lord help us. Um, Anna sat night and day at the Lord's feet in the temple as her full-time calling. As part, of all, as part of their life of prayer, David and Paul often visited and prayed in the temple. They went to a place called the house of prayer, as the house of prayer, to pray. That was a dynamic part of their, their life of prayer. But then they had other dimensions of what God wanted them to do. They would leave, and they continued functioning as a house of prayer outside of the little temple complex. Does that make sense? That's why it's important that we have understanding about our identity as a house of prayer, so that if you ever, any of you are in a jail cell one day, or a prison camp, or whatever the scenario might be, you can continue functioning as a house of prayer irrespective of your circumstances. But Anna was called in a full-time way to an actual place of prayer. And this, this calling was equally as valid as David and Paul's. It was more hidden. But I tell you what, it'll be equally rewarded in the day of the Lord if she was being faithful to what God told her to do, which she obviously was. Through her lifestyle of prayer and fasting, she built a sacred space where people could meet with God in fellowship and in intimacy. 
is very valuable and very important to God, that the place of joy, the house of prayer, be established in that actual building as well. Letter F. So we should be careful not to judge others if their life of prayer finds expression through different means and venues than our own at different seasons, different times. Sometimes there can be unnecessary confusion, hurt, and misunderstanding caused when people confuse the value of and commitment to prayer, which is normal Christianity, which is applicable on a more general basis. When we confuse that with a particular outward form of prayer, which is typically more diverse and calling dependent. Does that make sense? For example, I've observed a lot of hurt and misunderstanding between marketplace people, between missions people, and house of prayer people. I've been in all three worlds. Well, I haven't been as much in the marketplace world as, as I would like. You know, I have a heart for business one day, if, should the Lord open the door. But I've, 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 I have a lot of marketplace friends, and I've watched interactions sometimes that are, you know, or have, I've had interactions with them, listening to their perceptions of the way they see the prayer people see them, and then the way the house of prayer people see that the business people see them, you know, and the reality is that Jesus is a good leader, and he knows where to put his people. Okay? I have a friend of mine who is a businessman, has two or three businesses, but he also is running a house of prayer in North Carolina. He was talking to somebody uh, who's a full-time uh, uh, intercessor in, a, in some place, and the, this was the way the, the interaction went. So when are you going to start giving me money to do what I'm supposed to do? Like, to do something that's really, I don't remember the exact message, but that was what was received was, your job is to make money so that I can do the real thing. As if God wasn't really leading that brother in the Lord as equally as the, the person. Versus, the Lord puts it on this man's heart to give the, the person some money, and there's mutual thanksgiving and gratitude for the place that God's, God's put them. Okay? Does that make sense? I just want to say that because we just need to not be arrogant. We need not to presume. We need to, to be careful in our perceptions. And uh, I remember a, a marketplace guy who the, the way he was interpreting a number of messages was that for him to have value, he had to be in the house of prayer. And then the house of prayer people, I've watched them struggle with some of their insecurity as the marketplace people think I'm lazy. They think I'm not doing anything. I tell you what, that's not true. Prayer, full-time prayer is hard. It's some of the hardest work I've ever done. I, it's hard work, okay? And if the Lord speaks to somebody to give themselves a full-time prayer, they better obey the Lord because they're going to be held accountable to that. If the Lord speaks to somebody to do something in the marketplace, they better obey the Lord. But they all are called to pray. They're all called to pray. Now, the businessman may come to the house of prayer. David and Paul come to the house of prayer and then a sacred place, but they go out and they're praying as much as in the place that God has them. So, Terry, you had something you wanted to say? That, that, let, me, let me ask a question to piggyback off of that. How many of you want to give yourselves, how many of you love Jesus? Let's start there. 
obviously. Okay, in light of that fact, how many of you want to give your lives to something that you know is important to Jesus? Right? Now, all of us, right? So, what happens if you start interpreting messages as what you're doing and what Jesus has spoken to you to do, which is valuable to Him, if you're starting to get the impression that somebody else doesn't value it, and so you're, starting, you're, you're interpreting it rightly or wrongly as what you're doing isn't important to God, when it actually is, if you're actually doing what He wants you to do. I tell you what, it's a good thing that God calls different parts of the body to do different things, okay? So, let's read some Bible passages. I'm not going to get into this anymore. Romans 14, 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Josh, you are Jesus' servant. Ross, you're Jesus' servant. Be faithful to your master. Don't try to live for Tim Miller's expectations. Find out what your master's will is for you and obey it faithfully. That's what you're going to be held accountable for. You're not going to be held accountable for what some leader or a visionary or a book tells you is valuable. They may have some valuable insight into that, and the Lord may use that to stir your heart. But the reality is, if Jesus speaks to you and gives you an assignment... Make prayer the foundation of it. Do it wholeheartedly. And that's what you're going to be held accountable for in the day of the Lord. To his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. 1 Corinthians 7, 17-24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So Paul's making... Uh, He's, he's using his authority here to lay down a, a, a rule in these churches, and it has to do with them being content when God, to the place where God calls them and, and living in fellowship and intimacy with Jesus wherever he has them. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. If God called you when, uh, if you're a Jew, is the point, then be satisfied as being a believing Jew. Don't try to become a Gentile, and so, so on and so forth. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. Now, if you're a slave in the first century Roman Empire, you don't have the option to just go do something that you want to do if you want to go do a ministry in downtown Rome. You're pretty much stuck to what your master wants you to do. Okay? But his free, that doesn't mean that his freedom is contingent on, on that situation because his freedom is in Christ. And if he's a slave, let him work, serve his masters unto the Lord. And that'll be an act of worship before the Lord. And he'll receive his reward in the day of the Lord when both master and slave stand before a common master. Does that make sense? Were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If God opens the door for you to get your freedom, take it. You know, don't stay a slave. But if you have to be a slave, be content in the Lord and do it as unto the Lord. Make slavery, and ser- it's more like servanthood in, in this context. Make it a context of worship. Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who is freed when called is a slave of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. If you're a mother, okay, and you can't make 20 prayer meetings 
pray with all your heart in context to your home as a priest in your home. Okay? The Lord is, He really does, He wants, he wants His body to grow and, and fill His validation of where he, gen, he has them. I've seen, you know, a lot of moms, they think, man, am I just unspiritual because I don't, I can't go to a particular form of, I can't go to the temple and pray with Anna who doesn't have any children, or I can't go to the, to this particular prayer, but I can go to this one, and I can go to that one, and I can do, the, the Lord really wants that mom to feel empowered so that she can pray in context to her everyday life, and it's just as important. Okay, so that's one side of it. I want to point that out. Now we're going to talk about another situation. There's a time and season for everything, Solomon told us. Okay, there are times and seasons when the mom, when the plumber, when the Anna, the David, and the Paul, God says, shut it down because a crisis is upon you. And there's something about laying down the common, what we, you know, the commonplace becomes sacred when we, when we do it in prayer and commit it to the Lord. But there's also a sense in which our everyday tasks, when we put them aside and come together with urgency and sobriety, that it's a statement to the Lord that we're taking Him seriously. So there's a time and a season for us to put down our normal everyday, our normal everyday tasks, even when they're valuable to the Lord, when we're doing them as unto Him and in a spirit of prayer. There's a time and a place for us to to stop what we're doing, gather for corporate prayer with a solemn and a sober spirit. Joel 2, 1 through 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Joel 1 was about this locust plague that hit Israel. And Joel 2 I believe, is talking about uh, something that's still future. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to go into an end-time study on, on Joel 2, though. But Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Now, I'm still, I go back and forth. I, I'm still undecided whether I think that this is the fifth seal and all of those locusts, those semi-locusts slash demons that come up out of the abyss led by Apollyon, I'm still, you know, or whether it's uh, that the, the locust plague in Joel's day was, a, was a kind of a picture of the Antichrist armies that are going to be swarming the nation of Israel like locusts. And the reason I, uh, there's lots of reasons I'm not decided about that. Restraint, self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, Tim. Move forward. Verse 3, before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes. I'm not going to read the whole passage here, but the point is, disaster is upon the people of God. And I tell you what, in Matthew 24, the book of Revelation, many other, First, Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 There are crises that are coming to the earth far more intense than the the locust plague that ate all of the barley and the wheat and all of the greenery when that that plague hit in Joel's day. The earth is going to shake to and fro like a drunkard. 
in the in context of those shakings. And so, what are we admonished to do? Let's go down to to uh, verse twelve or verse eleven. The Lord thunders at the head of his army; his forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great; it is dreadful. Who can endure it? Well, let's get a little hint here. Verse 12, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. You know, in ancient Israel, if as a sign of mourning, they would tear their garments. God's saying, I don't want that. I want an inward tearing. I want genuine repentance. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. It's been hitting me. Revelation 16, the bowls. It says in the fifth bowl that the, that the false prophet and the Antichrist and Satan, they send out these deceiving spirits that look like frogs to deceive the nations, to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. And Jesus, right after the fifth bull, uh, that's the sixth bull, just after that, he interjects, behold, he's speaking to his people, behold, I come like a thief. Stay awake. Don't be found naked and shamefully exposed. Don't soil your clothes. Can you imagine the level of pressure on the earth and on the body of Christ, we're going to be seeing and hearing reports about the Antichrist armies that in their arrogance actually think they can defeat God. They're going to be amassing by the millions, I guess. I don't know how many, but multitudes amassing around Jerusalem. And Jesus says, stay awake. Stay awake. You can just feel them. They're coming. You're feeling... that the walls of Jerusalem are being shaken, or wherever you are, you're in a prison camp. And you're holding on, you're holding on, you're holding on. Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. Jesus, come back, Jesus, come back, Jesus, come back. We trust you. You're not going to abandon us to the grave. You're going to restore this earth. This Sodom and Gomorrah around me is not going on forever. And like Lot, our souls are going to be, no, no, no. We're going to be tormented by the wickedness surrounding us, but we're going to say, no, no, stay awake, stay awake. And it's going to because, be because we gave ourselves to prayer now, before that day comes, that we actually can faithfully turn to prayer then. It's not an option. It's not an option. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, the newborns, bring them too. Let the priests, let the bridegroom leave his his room and the bride her chamber, shut down the wedding, the locust plague, shut down the wedding, the first woe has just been released. Shut down the wedding. The second woe. Shut down the wedding. Jesus is getting ready to come back to marry his true bride. Let the priests who minister before the altar weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. 
Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? In these kinds of times, there is a time and a place for us to shut everything down, come together, cry out to God for mercy and for grace in our time of need. Letter H, on a group level, a commitment to prayer usually finds expression in one of two ways. Large group prayer meetings or small group prayer meetings, that's pretty obvious. Both are valuable, have their practical advantages and challenges. At the end of the age, persecution will increasingly drive us to small group prayer meetings. This is already true in many parts of the world. But the bigger prayer meetings are also valuable so long as we can conduct them. God values prayer however it's expressed. But we need to be prepared for a lot of small group prayer meetings in light of what's coming. Letter I. One increasingly popular model in format of prayer is the harp and bowl model. I won't go into all of this as much because most of you are aware of this. But I just wanted to to briefly mention it here because we are going to be using this model on our solemn assemblies the first Friday night of every month. This model mixes worship, prayer, intercession to create an atmosphere of enjoyable prayer. And it's inspired by Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 8, it says, In heaven, as they were worshiping, each one had a harp. They were holding a golden bowl, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, that the saints were going up before God in context of the worship, and there was a dynamic interchange there. And so the harp and bowl model finds its inspiration there, that if they're doing it there, let's try it down here. Let's try it down here. And I've generally found that the harp and bowl model, if, you know, it, has, it really does a good job of creating an atmosphere of enjoyable prayer and helping a, a whole room engage in a spirit of unity, especially as we're singing choruses together. So I'm not, again, the harp, and bowl, the harp and bowl model will vary even itself from culture to culture. <clears throat> prayer at the end of the age. I just want to basically for this section just read a passage of Scripture. But clearly... At the end of the age, the bride's growth in both her identity and function as the house of prayer will be more vital than ever. We will be called to stand pure, to stand holy, radiant, burning with oil in our lamps in the face of an anti-Messiah empire and a level of worldwide wickedness more vile than anything the world has ever seen. Luke seventeen, twenty-two through 18. Seven. It's to give context for Luke 18 here. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Why will they be longing for it? Because as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days when God brought Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, so it will be in those days. We're going to be longing, people. We're going to be longing for one of the days of the Son of Man. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting 
and building, life going on as usual. God's not going to hold us to account for the things we're doing. Verse 29, But the day day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. 34, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding together, one will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord, they asked, he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So in light of this, in light of the intensity of the time that's coming, Jesus begins teaching them, gives them a parable about prayer. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. There are going to be so many pressures and so many voices telling us in that day to give up that are going to try to convince us that God has abandoned the earth and that he's not going to restore it and that he's just given it over all to wickedness and he's not going to do anything about it. But we're going to say, no, those are lives. Lies, we will not believe them. We're going to hold on and have a watchful and prayerful spirit to the end. We should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. If you ever have doubt about the power of request, this is somebody that cared nothing about the person, but requests have power. I went to Taco Bell one time. This is my Taco Bell story. I looked at the, I looked at the person. I was ordering a 75-cent taco or whatever it was, 50 cents, 75 cents, I just looked at him, I said, can I have a discount? Turned out to be the manager. He pulled out his discount card, gave me like 10% off my 50-cent taco. Like, gave 40 cents, whatever. But that 10% of 50, whatever it is, you know, he gave me a discount. So there's power in a request. How much greater when the one to whom you're making the request actually cares about you deeply? And he's actually just. And that's Jesus' point, verse 6. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God... I was on an IHOP budget. Sorry, people. <laughs> Just wanted to, you're probably thinking, man, you're asking, asking a discount on the 10% discount on your ta- 20% taco? Preparation. Preparation, that's right. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, verse 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. This thing is going to be so intense, the prayer meeting is never going to stop. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly because he comes like a thief to the, to the wicked. He comes like a thief to the dull in spirit. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, to those, we are not in the dark so that this day should catch us off guard. We are children of the light, and we're looking for it, and we know the signs, and we will be expecting him. But he's going to come suddenly and come crashing down with power and fire and brimstone 
from the heavens. There's a reason the saints have to be, are going to be raptured <laughs> before they come down with Jesus to the earth. It's because he's going to be raining down fire and burning sulfur on the earth and destroying the wicked with hailstones and comets and whatever else the heck is coming from the sky. Okay, there's a reason that we're going to be in the air with him for a brief time before things settle down. And he will put his bride on display. He'll start plucking them up from the prison camps. He'll start plucking them up from the middle of Jerusalem if they're hiding in a, in a basement. He'll, he'll start plucking them up from the grave in Minnesota. He'll gather them. He'll put them on display. And then he's going to begin raining fiery coals and fiery hell and just all kinds of fire. He's going to rain it down on the wicked. And it's going to be like, it's going to be quick. It's going to be sudden. But we'll be watching and waiting for it. However, I tell you, they will see, he, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find people that are actually holding on to him? Will he find faith in the earth? Will he find it? Will he find it in this room? Guys, this thing is for real. This thing is serious. These four P's that we're doing, it's not just to do a little ministry thing. It's to strengthen us in spirit so that we can say, God, there may be nobody else that stays faithful to the end, but we are. We're weak little people, but we're going to hold on. Conclusion, Jesus is zealous for the purity of his house. He's coming back for a fiery, praying, pure, and passionate bride. Not a dull, sleeping, unresponsive, and indifferent people. As the Daniel Institute of Prayer and Missions, as Bethany Church, we want to put a stake in the ground in the area of prayer. God wants a fiery praying bride. Then let us become one. Let us become one by His grace. The gospel of His grace. He's a master potter, and He'll put fire in us if we ask Him. Our solemn assemblies on the first Friday every month, they're a small start. They're a small start, but there's something. There's something, and God values it. He really does value it. He takes it seriously. I believe that in the coming days, we will see God raise up a multicolored tapestry of prayer, all kinds of expressions, small groups, large groups, for the bride's preparation and strengthening. The harp and bowl model. The spoons and forks model. You just whatever, whatever it needs to be. We did that once in our in our house church. We got all these instruments and just began playing, and it was one of the funnest worship times I've ever had. Somebody was beating on the coffee table, others had spoons and stuff. It was so fun. Somebody had a djembe. We will see multiple and complementary outward forms of prayer, undergirded by a common and deep commitment and value of prayer flowing from a unified biblical worldview that motivates prayer. Solemn assemblies will become increasingly important for the people of God at the end of the age. When God tells his people to shut down business as usual in order to pray, we had better heed his call. This means everyone, bride, bridegroom, the young, the old, the babies, the priests, the plumbers, the businessmen, the waiters and waitresses, moms and dads, Saints of the Most High God, the day of the Lord is at hand. It's at hand. 
I know that the, the, the commonness of life, just the everyday monotony of life, it dulls, it, it dulls us to the fact, but it is at hand. It's at hand. Matthew 24 is upon us. The Middle East is on the verge of a major conflagration. Is that the right word, Dave? Help me. Conflagration? It's, a, it's on the verge of a mess. It's on the verge of war and fighting and violence and hitting and arguing and pulling hair. It's on the verge of a major disaster. There, I mean, I don't even know that the oil spill in the Gulf, do we realize the implications of that, really, unless they get that thing stopped? I mean, I, I don't think we can fathom it. I mean, that thing gets in the Gulf Stream, it's going to go all the way to Europe. Doesn't, isn't that right? Doesn't the Gulf Stream go all the way along the East Coast? I mean, these things, I mean, there's been a dramatic increase, earthquakes, famines, these kinds of things, and this thing's just ramping up, beginning of birth pains, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation. The Lord has spoken to many credible prophetic voices that the earth is getting ready to enter a time of unprecedented worldwide shaking, economic, unto politics. And we know ultimately it's coming down to religious allegiances. And these, a lot of the prophetic voices that I would consider more credible, even those that are not known as being the doom and gloom prophets, prophetic people, the Lord's talking to them about, brace yourself. Okay? So, it's time for the church to pray. It was time for the church to pray when Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied that the day was coming when the Lord would come with all of his holy ones to remove all the wicked from the earth and all the wicked things they've ever done from the earth. How much more now? Letter E, I would encourage you to start telling your friends and family about next week's Psalm Assembly. This is for people at Bethany Church are invited. This is for the whole region. We want, this is available to, to everybody. The college students, come if you can. The young, the old, the music's going to be loud. Bring the babies. I'll bring mine. Mine are going to be there. Neely's starting to get a little bit louder. She's got some things to pray. College students, Eden Prairie, if you're from there, Bloomington, if you're from the north, wherever. I mean, maybe one day we'll have a meeting in a more central location. For now, God's blessed us with this place. But this is some, we want the Daniel Institute to be a, a place and a means for strengthening the saints from all parts of the body in the Twin Cities. Bring them if you can. Young, old, come if you can. Let's pray. Let's cry out together. Keith, can we get mood music while I pray? I'm just going to give you guys, <laughs> I'm going to give you guys the chance to respond. Just uh, sit. You're welcome to stay a little while. Keith's going to turn some music on here. I, I'm always really bad at, at uh, closing messages because I just am. So turn on some music, Keith. Let's take some time to, let's take some time to just respond to the Lord. And he's the one that we really need to respond to here is asking the Holy Spirit how we can grow, how we can go to the next place in a life of prayer. I've been asking that myself a lot lately. How, God, how can I go to the next place? I mean, you get to those plateau seasons, you know, how can we go to the next place? How can we break through? Ask the Holy Spirit how to respond so that, so that all of us, and you you're yourself individually, we can all go to the next place in, in, in prayer. So Lord, in Jesus' name, I, I pray, Father, that you would give us a spirit of prayer in this hour. 
Lord, I ask you in the name of Jesus to strengthen us in our commitment to fellowshipping with the Father, fellowshipping with the Son, fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. Father, we take your word seriously. We take your word seriously. Show us, Lord Jesus, how to empower the saints to pray where they are and show us, Lord Jesus, when to call the saints to shut down what they're doing and gather as a group. Give us wisdom and discernment, Jesus, our Master, our Lord. Show us. Show us, Lord. Show us, Jesus. Show us, Jesus. God, we know, God, we're... One solemn assembly at the beginning of the month, God, we know it's weak, it's small, but Jesus, we say it's, our, it's, it's, it's real. God, we say, come and visit us at these things. I pray that your spirit, Lord, would move with power and fire in our midst, that you would anoint the worship leaders, Father, that you would anoint the prayer leaders, that you would anoint the singers and the musicians, that you would grip our hearts with urgency for the hour that we would become a people, Lord Jesus, who stand firm to the end. Lord, I ask you for grace. I ask you for grace, Jesus. 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 Grace, Jesus. I ask you for grace, Jesus. Help us to grow in our identity as the house of prayer. Help us to function as a house of prayer, as a functioning temple that's working like you want it to work Jesus help us God help us help us help us help us help us Jesus help us Jesus Father help us so Holy Spirit help us Jesus we know the shakings are coming Lord I pray that you would build a sacred space in this church I pray for a multiplication of sacred spaces all over this region oh God that Jesus when people the economic shaking hits that when they think about maybe taking their lives and when they're depressed that they would somehow by your spirit find their way to a sacred place that they would father make it to the solemn assembly that Jesus you would show them your faithfulness to them Lord I pray that you would set up places of prayer and I ask you Jesus I pray for your saints in this in the twin cities I pray for your saints throughout the nations of the earth that you would strengthen them in prayer in the marketplace. Strengthen the moms in prayer, Jesus. Strengthen them in abiding in the vine. Strengthen, Lord Jesus, the fathers leading their homes, leading their children in prayer. Father, I ask you to strengthen families in prayer. Jesus, we need your grace. We need your grace, Jesus. 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 We ask And we seek and we knock, God, give us grace. Give us grace, God. Give us grace, God. Give us grace, God. God, we can't do it by ourselves. We can't do it by ourselves, God. We need your spirit. We need your grace, Master. God, help us. Build your house of prayer. Build your saints. Build your body. That the fruit of lips offering sacrifices of praises as fruit and a sweet aroma to you will come before you, Lord. You deserve it.